things of where we have been would be for you to compute that if God is supreme and joy is to be the passion of my life in him, that this view of life minimizes the reality of suffering. That's not true. Your worship this morning has not minimized it. Your worship songs have not minimized it. As I discern the theology of PDI, it does not minimize it, though you believe in gifts of healing as you should. It does not minimize suffering. I want to highlight this. I want to highlight this because I think my theology is more vulnerable to this. If you wonder why I produced a 10th anniversary edition of Desiring God. If you've ever read any piece of Desiring God, raise your hand. Okay, thank you. If, if you wonder why did, why did in 1996 they do a 10 year anniversary, it wasn't just to get a new cover on it and whatever. It was because I said to the publisher, I've got to add a chapter on suffering. And so they, they worked with me and we added a poem about life and I added a chapter on suffering and I brought some things up to date. But mainly it was driven by the chapter on suffering, the sacrifice of, of Christian hedonism. Texts like this one have moved this. 2 Corinthians 6, verse, verse is it? 8 to 10. In honor and dishonor, I minister. In ill repute and good repute, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That is an amazing phrase. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I would love for you to give your own testimony of what that looks like in your life. Because you know, if you're over 30, probably, you know what that's talking about. That you can weep your eyes out and a part of you is rejoicing. The clearest example for me was when I got the phone call that my mother had been killed in a car wreck in Israel when I was 28. And it's one of those phone calls where you, you, know, you pick up the phone and at the other end of the line, a brother-in-law who only has the strength to do it says, Johnny, I've got some bad news. I can still hear it. You know, the very phrases. Okay. Your mother and dad were in a bus accident in Israel and your mother didn't make it. Quiet silence. And your dad may not make it. He's in the hospital. Uh, he said, that's all I know. Just got the long-distance phone call. Okay, just let me know when you know more. A little two-year-old Karsten, who's now married, is holding on to my leg. Daddy's sad. Daddy's sad. I hang up the phone and, and I say to Noel, Mama's dead. Mom is dead, and Daddy may not make it. And I went back to the bedroom and knelt down and just wept and wept and wept most of the night. And I was so happy inside because she was a believer. And that I had her for 28 years. So I've tasted a little bit. There have been other things. I've tasted a little bit of what Paul means when he says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It's not, it's not just that you're sorrowful sometimes and you're rejoicing other times. 
in the Christian life, there is a rootedness to this stuff we've been talking about, this joy thing, that is so deep and so profound, cannot be shaken. At least that's what I long for you to have, and that's what I'm after. Romans 5.3, we rejoice in tribulation, knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience works approvedness, and approvedness works hope, and hope does not put to shame because the love of God is poured out in our lives. Or 2 Corinthians 4.16, we do not lose heart. For though our outer nature is wasting away, I'm now into trifocals. That's wasting away. I have to say what to my kids more often because my ears are wasting away. After I play basketball, which by God's grace I can still do with the guys at church, my hips ache. They didn't used to. And someday I will die. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, and the things that are unseen are eternal. And there's the foundation of joy. So please, the misunderstanding to the effect that what I'm teaching when I talk about Christian hedonism is something to the effect of a health, wealth, and prosperity thing would be the grossest misunderstanding of what we've been doing in these days together. Another misunderstanding would be that it comes easy. Joy comes easy. It doesn't have to be fought for. 2 Corinthians 1.24. Listen to this apostolic self-identification. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers together with you for your joy. Underline the words, workers. Takes work to be happy. Because everything in life is militating against true joy in God. And our own flesh is lifting up alternatives to true joy all the time. And we must battle and work against it. Now... I'm trying to build a bridge from where we were last two sessions and where we're going this morning. And where we're going is to a promise text in Jeremiah 32, verses 36 to 41. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to go there with me so that we can read it together. Jeremiah 32, 36, we'll start at. And the aim here is to talk about what we were singing about. What was some of the words were about, namely, sustaining grace in the perplexities and the pain and the difficulties and the detours and the wilderness experiences of life. Fifteen years of celebration. My church, 1996, celebrated 125 years of God's faithfulness. The only reason PDI exists still, and Bethlehem Baptist Church exists still, is sustaining grace. And so we want to get at it this morning. And so I want to read these verses with you. And then I'm going to tell you some illustrations of it. And then I'm going to go into the verses and unpack them. And we'll draw it to a close with some of the best news you've ever heard in these verses. Verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city, 
namely Jerusalem, of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger and in my wrath and in my great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And I will not turn away from them to do good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul, says the Lord. It just doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't get any better than words from God like that. Let me pray with you before we unpack this. Oh, Father in heaven. These have been good days together, and you have been good. You have been good. Are you not good? And you who did not spare your only son, but gave him up for us all, will you not now freely with him give us for all eternity and all the rest of our years on this fallen, futility-ridden planet? All things that we need. And so what we need right now is sustaining grace for preaching. Sustaining grace for listening. Sustaining grace for protection. Sustaining grace for faith. Sustaining grace to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we behold in this text the glory of the Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Sustaining grace. I'm going to give you a little four-line rhyme that I will repeat enough times before I'm done for you to perhaps memorize or at least write it down. And it goes like this. What, what is sustaining grace? It's an answer to that question. Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. I want to give you some illustrations of this. Bob Ricker is the president of the Baptist General Conference, and I don't think he'd mind you, me telling you this story because he told it publicly at our church a couple of years ago. His, his younger daughter, as a teenager, was in a very serious car accident, thrown from the car on the road, unconscious and not breathing. Behind them was a car that immediately pulled over. In the car, there was a doctor. In the doctor's pocket was a breathing tube. In his heart and mind was a willingness to risk a malpractice suit. And he thrust it into her throat. And she lived. He did her wedding about four or five years later. And as part of the ceremony, he looked her in the eye and he reached out and he touched the scars on her throat. And he said, these are memorials of sustaining grace. Then he uh, 
referred to God who sovereignly works all things according to his will. Now, I stood up when I heard that story on a Saturday at a big celebration at our church. I stood up the next Sunday morning. I recounted it to our people. And then I said, Bob Ricker, who was sitting right over here with his wife, D, is not stupid. He's not naive. He knows that if the providence of God in its glorious wisdom and power can see to it that behind his daughter's car is coming a car with a doctor in it, with a breathing tube in his pocket and courage in his heart to use it to save his life, he could have prevented the accident that almost killed her. But sustaining grace is not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress. But this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. My wife and my son, Abraham and my son Barnabas, we're the only two at home right now, and my daughter Talitha, a year ago, or is it two now? I think it's two. Talitha was just six months old. We're driving without me in this clunky old station wagon that we had from Minneapolis to Georgia to see the family with the new baby. And... Just about an hour south of Indianapolis, on a Saturday afternoon, the car dies. The smoke comes out, and she's there without her valiant husband to solve the problem with three children on a Saturday afternoon. A man pulls up behind her. He's about 60, and he's a farmer, and uh, he wants to be helpful. And he looks, he sees the radiator is totally shot. It is rusted through, water coming from everywhere. This car is not drivable, and it has to have a new radiator. And he says, well, now, come stay with me tonight. Well, that puts a, a young woman in a very awkward situation. So my wife... Um, says, I think, I think all we need is a, a motel and we can take care of it on Monday. And he says, well, you know, the Lord says that if you minister to others, it's like ministering to him. I'm trying to tip her off that I'm okay. <laughs> I think that's what he meant. And she said, well, he, and, and, and he said, with me and my wife. He would stay with me and my wife. And, and she said, well, could we go to church with you tomorrow morning? It was her way of, I suppose, checking this guy out. <laughs> we live in the city. And, uh, and he said, if you could take a Baptist church. <laughs> like... Brer Rabbit, throw me in the briar patch. Please don't throw me in the briar patch. <laughs> so they went, and and uh, here's a detour, right? Here's a detour in life you didn't plan. Well, this man turns out to be a retired aviation mechanic. He pulls a radiator out. He gives them... Church on Sunday morning, the next morning, he gets up at 6 a.m. on Monday, drives to Indianapolis, gets a new radiator, puts it in, and has them on the road by 10 o'clock Monday morning, and will not charge them for it. And in the meantime, Barnabas, who is the fisherman in our family, finds a pond on their farm and catches a 19-inch catfish. He thinks this is the greatest detour he's ever been on in his life. 
Now, as my wife recounted all this to me and we looked together back over that little vignette of life and we thought, here's a farmer who's an aviation mechanic, who's a Christian, who's a Baptist to boot, who's got a pond with a 19-inch catfish swimming around at the bottom so that my son can not only feel frustrated that he's going to get a day late to grandmama's, but can catch a fish and feel happy. The God who can orchestrate that could have preserved the radiator another 700 miles. But sustaining grace is not grace to bar what is not bliss nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness, is there to sustain. It was a young man who came to me in our church a while back, dealing with some of the heaviest stuff in his life, and he just kind of blurted out to me, you know, it would have been easier for me if Jesus had not healed so many people and would have just given sustaining grace to help them when they're not healed. And my response to him was, he did do that. He did do that. In 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul had the thorn in the flesh and he cries out, take it away. No. Take it away. No. Take it away. No. And after three times, he says, all right. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds, most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain. And then in the darkness is there to sustain. Be fun to let CJ, come up here and, and document a few detours in the history of PDI. Our church is 127 years old now, and in 1895, it was then 14 years old, and the church caught on fire. There are pictures of this. I've read about it. I've I've even, I've even read the Minneapolis Tribune reports of the fire. We've gone into the, into the archives. And the church caught on fire on a Saturday night. It was a huge fire. And, uh, in 1895, the fire company isn't like it is today, but they came and they, with their pumps and with their hoses, they climbed up on the roof of the burning church and did their hoses down in the church, trying to save it. And the roof caved in, except for the one little place where the firemen were standing. And the Tribune reports this, because this was news, you know, this was big deal, that in the city, this big fire, a church burned down, the firemen risking their life were on top, the, the roof caves in on the fire, and a patch of roof is left where the firemen are standing. And within six months, by God's sustaining grace, the church a block away, where we are now, we've been in this building since 1895, they found another building that the second congregational church was willing to sell. And they bought it, and it's turned out to be a better location and a better situation all around. So you had saved firemen, and you had uh, instant replacement, and you had a better location. That's sustaining grace. But not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. Let me give you just one more story. Otherwise, I'll wear it out. But I just want to, just from my own experience now, 
want to go back and, and uh, document a detour in my own life and try to interpret for you why when I hear a song like In My Deepest Loss, I Will Cling to the Cross, I can feel it wonderfully. Um, when I was uh, little, there were... I don't remember much about my childhood, and I think the reason I don't remember much is because my memory is merciful to me and blots out things that uh, weren't happy. I had wonderful parents. My parents were not abusive in the least, and it's nothing like that. They were just humiliating things that happened. I'm embarrassed to even talk about them. In fact, I won't talk about them. But things that happened to a child in, in the fourth grade... In the fifth grade, sixth grade at school that are so humiliating. You wonder as a little child if you can come back the next day. Or, and I don't know whether those are the kinds of things that fed into this, this phenomenon. But when I came to the seventh and eighth grade, my body would not allow me to speak in front of a group. I would shake so violently. And my heart would beat so horrendously hard I could I could look down and see my shirt going like this and my legs would be weak and my throat which was the main problem would completely close up so this was not your ordinary people talking about butterflies and weak knees and and I have people tell me when they sit down having read scripture or having sung or something oh, I was so nervous I say you do not know what nervous is because you did it. You did it. And I couldn't do it. You got to realize what that cost in the eighth grade. Can remember one in particular. Everybody had to write a report of their science experiment. One paragraph and read it. So I thought, I prayed. Maybe if I hold a very firm, not a piece of paper like this, which you can hear and you can see, but something like this thing would be firm. Maybe if I held it, it would be firm. And maybe if there was something in the front that I could lean on, it could do it. So I was going to try to do it. And we're just going down the line like this. And as the person two in front of me got up, read their paragraph, what was going on inside of me was just horrendous. My body was screaming, I will not do this. And I have no idea why this is. But when the person in front of me got up to go, I got up and I went to the bathroom. And I just cried and cried and cried and cried and waited until class was over. And went back and said to the teacher, I'm sorry, I, I can't do it. Tenth grade, two years later. I'm just picking out ones that I remember. I think the, Mr. Vermillion, the civics teacher, says you have to give an oral book report. I said to Mr. Vermillion, I can't, give, I can't give an oral book report. I'll do anything. I'll do any extra credit. can't give an oral book report. He says, John, this is part of your education. You have to give an oral book report, or you can't get anything better than a C in this class. Fine, I'll take a C. <laughs> he didn't believe me, and I didn't do the oral book report. I didn't do it, and I got my C. I was uh, a nice guy in high school, but... I refused every opportunity to take an office because you know what you have to do to be a vice president of your class? You have to give a speech. And I couldn't. So I was never elected any office or anything like that. This lasted right on into college. And I won't tell you the, the story of, of its 
change because you, you can read about it in the chapter on anxiety in Future Grace. I tell the whole story there. Here's the point I want to make this morning. I think what God was doing in those days was not hating me. I don't think he hated me. I don't even think he disliked me. I, I think God was making a preacher. I think God clogged my mouth in order to fill my heart. Because what I would do in those days is to get alone and feel desperate and go to God over and over and over again because I had nobody else to go to. And he took me off of the fast track of popularity and drove me into his word and drove me into myself and drove me into nature, into the sky at night. I would go up on my roof and I would lie down on the roof of my house and look up into the sky at night and wonder why and marvel at the bigness of it all and think thoughts about eternity. And, and I think if I'd been a cool teenager and everybody liked me and I had it all together, I wouldn't have ever done that. I've been out being cool every night, you know, with everybody who thought I was cool. And I didn't. Nobody thought I was cool. The silence that fell over those classrooms when it came my turn to say no was horrible. I wouldn't ever wish it on any kid. I, we go to these things called creativity nights at the school where my kids go to school, used to. And it was the night where everybody had to do a little something, a little poem or a little reading or something. And there was one kid, tall and gangly. And, and he would stand up. And I watched this happen for four years from about grade one through four or something. And he would fail and have to stop in the middle every time. And I'm sitting at the back inside saying, don't make him do that. <laughs> I hate what I'm seeing here. I felt exactly like I was in his skin. It took me back 25 years and everything inside of me was, don't torture this kid this way. I think he's doing okay. I saw him the other day. He's about six and a half feet tall and, and it seems like he's all right. <laughs> but he's probably... Telling stories like this somewhere, too. God was not failing to answer my prayers, I believe. He was causing me to feel deeply. He was causing me to think a lot. He was addicting me to himself and his greatness as the only hope of my life. He was doing it in a way nobody else would do it. That is, he was making a preacher in a way nobody else would do it. <laughs> My dad's a preacher. My dad's a preacher. You know what people always ask me as a kid? Going to be a preacher? They didn't know me if they asked that question. And I said, no way. <laughs> the humiliation and the loneliness and the crying out. I tell you, if Eugene Lawrence, my old pastor, could be in the audience right now. Maybe he is, because he's in heaven. And he would see what I'm doing here. He would go to Acts 11.23 and say what Barnabas said. I have seen the grace of God, and I am glad. I have seen the miraculous, sustaining grace of God in a young man's life, and I am glad. I think God took every day's pain and used it for my good. That's what I believe. What a difference, what a difference I think it would have made in my life if I had not spent certain fall afternoons sitting out on my 
front lawn overlooking Delwood Valley off into the piney mountain across the valley, listening to distant trains and wondering what it would be like to get on them and go to some place where nobody asks anymore why the preacher's kid can't give a three-minute report in training unit in the Southern Baptist Church. I think my life would be weak today, weaker today, if I didn't spend those afternoons looking across the valley wondering if I should get on the train and just disappear. don't think that was a mistake. What would my life have been if I hadn't sat alone under the dogwood tree? Remember this dogwood tree. Can you remember what the grass looked like, what it smelled like after I cut it? With a pad of paper in my hand, writing a poem to my mother, trying to express my appreciation because she was the only one who seemed to understand and would at night sit on my bed before one of those horrible reports were due and cry with me and say, somehow it'll work out. She didn't have an answer. She tried to send me to a psychologist one time. (laughs) And the psychologist had me look at a Rorschach chart. (laughs) You know, looks sort of like a butterfly. And he said, tell me what comes to mind. Well, I don't remember what I said. But she, at the end of this one hour together, told me it was my mother's fault. I was so furious that I walked out of there and never would go back. Mother was the only person that was getting me through this. And and she was telling me, it's your mother's fault that you're like this. Well, that's irrelevant to me, whether that's true or not. I have no idea whether something happened in my mother's womb or... Anything else? All I know is my mother was there. My my father was never there. He was always traveling. And so my mother was always there with a hug and with a, it's going to make it through this. And if I hadn't spent those days under the dogwood tree writing poems to her, I wouldn't be the preacher I am today. Well... Teenager, don't want a smooth life. Don't get mad at God because you look funny or you're not developing the way you'd like to develop or you don't have the friends you'd like. Embrace that pain. Embrace that pain. God's up to something really good here. Embrace that. And let it have its full ministering, deepening effect. You're going to pass through this thing. Something's going to happen in 5 or 10 or 15 years and you will look back and you will bless him. You, you won't, you won't minimize it. I am not minimizing those days. I would not want to live through that again for anything. But now I put an interpretation on it that says God was in the business of making a preacher who feels deeply, who's addicted to the supremacy of God, who's tasted grace, who can empathize with some of that, and I won't begrudge God's wisdom in that. So, not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, then in the darkness is there to sustain. Now, this is all based on a text, believe it or not. There's a text, and and I want you to go with me to the text. And to move into Jeremiah 32, where we read, I want to pose the question of whether you'll make it through your darkness, and how you're going to make it through your darkness, and your detour, in life. In Jeremiah 32, the people have been in Babylon and have been in bondage, and verse 36 gives the people's statement about it. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which you say, here's what you say, 
It's a true statement. It is given, that is, Jerusalem is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. That's true. So they say, but they don't get the last word. God gets the last word, and he gives his word in verse 37. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them. Now stop and let that land on you. I will bring them back from the misery into which I drove them. All right. From grade eight, to sophomore year in college, God put me in the wilderness. God made me lonely. He made me nervous. He made me sad. He made me pimple-faced. My mother also sent me to a dermatologist for two years. My face was covered like leprosy with pimples because I was so anxious. And I ate too much chocolate, probably. <laughs> so, just... Behold, I will gather you out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger. Now, it may be that I did enough bad things. I did lust a lot as a teenager. I did struggle with a lot of masturbation as a teenager. I did look at things I shouldn't have looked at as a teenager. And it may be that in his fatherly anger, he was upset with me. And I needed to suffer to be cleansed of some of that crap as well. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know how God works. I just know the anger towards his children is not a condemning anger. It is a very healing anger. And there were reasons why they went to Babylon. And there were reasons why he's bringing them back in 70 years the way he does. In my anger and great indignation, I will bring them back to this place and will make them dwell in safety. So there's a great triumph here now. He put them into the trouble. He's going to get them out of the trouble. And he's got purposes in it all. Now, the question that's raised for your life right now, wherever you are, in the PDI movement, in my church, is how can we be confident? What promises, what promises will get you home today into that darkness, sustain you in it for whatever number of years it takes, bring you out on the other end like he brought Joseph out on the other end of a 17-year absolutely inexplicable, miserable detour. Where are you in the Joseph cycle? Are you in the pit? Or are you coming up out of the pit ready to be sold into slavery? Are you sold into slavery? Or are you now in Potiphar's house thinking, oh, cool, I've got at least a good job just before you get lied about and put in jail? How far down have you gone? You may think it can't get any worse. It probably can. It probably can. Joseph probably said in the pit, can't get any worse. But then they sold him into slavery and he probably said it can't get any worse. But then Potiphar's wife lied about him. He said, it probably can't get any worse. And then the butler forgot about him for two more years. And he probably said, it can't get any worse. Well, it could have, but God stopped it after 17 years. And he made him vice president and saved the people of God. So don't begrudge your 17-year detour on the way to the vice presidency in heaven. You will judge angels. You will judge angels. You will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. Don't begrudge his preparatory work. He is God. We are not God. Now the question is, what will, what will sustain you? What will get you through? There's a song that goes like this. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I wonder if you pray like that. Do you pray, God, my heart 
especially in times of darkness and discouragement, is prone to wander away. Bind me, my heart, like a fetter. Bind me with a fetter. Give me another word for fetter. Chain. Bind me with a chain so that I will not wander. Do you pray that way? Or do you presume theological issue? I'm a Calvinist. And I'm not a Calvinist because of John Calvin. I'm a Calvinist because I am weak and fearful that left to myself, I will apostatize. I will turn on Christ and leave him as many do. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have gone out. But they went out that it might be plain that they were not of us. My only hope is that by sovereign grace, God binds me with a sovereign iron bronze divine fetter to himself. That's my only hope. That's why I'm a Calvinist. It's just John Piper's desperateness. So I pray and I commend these kinds of prayers to you. Pray, keep me, preserve me, defeat every rebellion that rises up in my heart. Overcome every niggling doubt in my head. Deliver me from destructive temptation. Nullify in my life every fatal allurement. Expose every demonic deception. Tear down every arrogant argument. Shape me, incline me, hold me, master me. Do whatever you do, have to do, to sustain me. Keep me for yourself. I don't think an Arminian can pray like that. Although you know... Thank God that most Arminians are so much better than their theology. (laughs) J.I. Packer, bless his heart, says God loves to honor the needle of truth in a haystack of error. And he does. Most people who are born of God, I've seen this in my own family, my wider family, most people who are born of God pray better than they believe. Maybe she wouldn't mind me saying this. My mother-in-law lost her 16-year-old son in a car accident. Four years after we were married, my her oldest daughter I married and then They have 10 children. So fourth son, I think. 16, broadsided, killed instantly. This woman, so deep with God that she just lifted up her heart and said, thank you that we had him. Thank you that he was born of God. Thank you that a few days before he was writing poems to Jesus. She's Mabel. Doing Mabel, Mabel thing. She hates Calvinism. <laughs> she doesn't anymore, really. This was 25 years ago. She doesn't anymore. But, but her misunderstandings of what I believe were profound, I think. And yet there she was, utterly submissive to the sovereignty of God. Because she's born of God. It's the way you are when you're born of God. You submit to God. Doesn't really matter what your head does with your theology for a while. You, you just, you're driven to God and you submit to Him. The text that I want to draw to a close now with is the last verses here that gives you the assurance that you will make it through your darkness and that when you cry out prayers like I just prayed, God will hear them according to His new covenant promise. So here, verses 38 following, 
They shall be my people. Now I believe you can put yourself in there because you are true sons and daughters of Abraham by faith in the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. They shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Let me point out four things from those verses. Number one, God promises to be your God. Now that may sound simple, but that's huge. That means that all of his godness, all of his sovereign power, all of his wisdom, all of his love, all of it is there for your disposal. If you say, this is my Bible, it means this Bible exists for me to do with what I want and it meets my needs. If you say, this is my car, I have this car at my disposal to get me where I want to go, it serves me. And if you say, this is my God. Or God says, I am your God. You mean all his godness is at your disposal to serve you for his great purposes. So when you say God is my God, you mean something very, very big. Second thing he promises, not just I will be your God, but then he says, I will change your hearts and cause you to love and fear me. Verse 39 I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. So how did you come to fear God? Know yourself, Christian. Know yourself so that you will know whom to thank when you ask or someone asks, how did you get to be the way you are? How did you become a believer? How did you come to trust in God? The answer is, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. God did that. God should get the glory for that. When you stand before God and he says, why are you here? Why do you presume to come into heaven? Your first answer will be, I trust your son and not my merit. And he'll say, that's a good answer. And then he'll say, why do you trust my son? And you might answer, because he's trustworthy, he's beautiful, he's glorious. I have seen his invincible, self-authenticating glory in the gospel. And he would say, that's exactly right. And then he might ask, why did you see it and not your brother? Then what are you going to say? I'm smart. <laughs> He's stupid. What you're going to say, you're going to quote 2 Corinthians 4, 6. You're going to look God in the face if you can stand it. And he will grant enough asbestos shears to allow it. You will look him in the face and you will say, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shone in my heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I saw. And he'll say, come on in. But if you try to take the glory for yourself, you will be in big trouble. The third thing he promises is that he will not turn away from us and he will not turn away from you nor let you turn away from him. This is getting as close to the best news in all the world. We're almost at the pinnacle and we're almost finished. So hang on. Verse 40. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do good to them. So all the songs we've been singing here, he's good, he's good, he's good. They're so deeply rooted in Scripture. 
And I bless God for that, for your music. I will not turn away from them to do good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. This is love, folks. You remember when I began yesterday morning, I said that I spoke to my people on Sunday about the phrase, beloved of God. And I said to them, if you read that phrase, he's writing to the beloved of God and you think like this. He loves everybody. I'm part of everybody. Therefore, he must love me. If that's all you know of the love of God, you're not part of his covenant bride. Because this is the description of the love of God for his covenant bride. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. And I will put the fear of me in your heart. And I will not turn away from doing good to you. And I will not let you turn away from me. God does not say that to everybody in the world. That's his covenant love to you. That's the love for his bride. And you've got to know that love because that's the love you feed on as a Christian. If you feed only on the love that God had for Judas, you can't have any assurance that you won't be a Judas. This text is the ground for why you won't become a Judas. You see that? I will not let them turn away from me. Now, don't press me on the mystery of why God didn't do it for Judas. There are ultimate things. There are hidden things in the Bible. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The hidden things belong to the Lord. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. I don't, I don't have answers for everything. But I know he did it. For you, and he didn't do it for Judas. And you should just tremble with gratitude. That's all you can do. And you shouldn't be puffed up in the least and go out to any unbeliever and say, He did it for me. He didn't do it for you. You would be so profoundly mistaken if you responded like that. You should devote all the rest of your life to commending to every unbeliever. You may have this if you will believe and leave in God's hands whether the sovereign work is done to bring them to belief. Leave it with him. But you lay down your life for them. You lay down your life for every unbeliever and leave with the sovereign God whether he does this covenanting. He alone can do the covenanting and put the fear of him in a heart and change the heart of stone to a heart of flesh and take out the evil heart and put in a heart of faith and cause them to walk in his statutes. Only God can do that. But you can love them and you can woo them and you can pray for them and you can serve them. Now... There's one last step in this text, and it's the best of all. You'd think it couldn't get any better than to know that God is working to keep you. But there is one more step, namely, that God promises to do this for you with the greatest intensity imaginable. Let's read verse 41. And I will rejoice over them, you, to do them good. He's not begrudgingly doing you good. He is rejoicing to do you good. And I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Now, I want you to see very clearly in this verse, so rivet your eyes on this verse so that when you leave this place, you won't be dependent on John Piper for his words. You'll be dependent on God for his words in this verse. At the front of the verse, there is the joy of God 
to do you good. And at the end of the verse, there is a statement of the intensity of that joy in the words, all, all, with all my heart and with all my soul. Now, there is no closing sermonic flair here. This is not a rhetorical exaggeration, what I'm about to say. I have thought carefully, reasonably, logically, textually about this. And I want to ask you, and I challenge you, can you conceive, I choose my words carefully, imagine or conceive of an intensity in the universe, I mean universe, galaxies, heaven and hell and earth. Can you conceive of an intensity greater than the intensity carried by the words with all God's heart and all God's soul? Now, that's a challenge to you. I'm in your face saying, try it. Let's try it. Let's just try it. Let's take all the desire for food in the world. How many people in the world? Six billion people or so? Let's take all the desire for food. 800 million of these people are on the brink of starvation right now. Let's take all the desire for sex in the world. You got it? Just gather it. Gather it together. Think of all the men and all the women in their different ways of desiring sex. Six billion of them. Well, a lot of those are kids, so five billion or whatever. Get all that desire together. Then all the desire for money. Get all that. Get that into your head. Then all the desire for fame. Oh, how we want to be somebody. Get all the desire for power. Get all the desire for meaning. Get all the desire for friends. Nobody likes to be lonely, rejected. Get all the desire for friends. Get all the desire for security. Oh, how we want to have a 911 handy and how we want to have security for our retirement. Get all that desire from six billion people. And any other desire you can think of and put it in a container now. You got it in a container? Now, compare that container and that desire with what is carried by the words, I rejoice to do you good with all my soul and with all my heart. Now, how does the container of that all compare with the container you've got holding all the desire for all the food and all the sex and all the fame and all the power and all the security of the world? And the best I can come up with is that it compares like a thimble to the Pacific Ocean. Now. Here's my rational, logical, reasonable, textual reason for saying that. God's soul is infinite. And all the desires of the universe outside God's desire are finite. And therefore, we must grasp for images to compare the infinite, which goes up and up and up and up and never stops going up and goes down and down and down and down and never stops going down and goes out and out and out and out and never stops going out and compare that to the finite limits of a mere six billion people desiring with all their might to sleep with somebody or eat a meal or become powerful and it is as nothing as dust in the scales compared to what all God's heart 
brings in intensity behind the words, I rejoice to do you good. Now you've got to pray about this because your one quart mind cannot handle this 100,000 gallon reality. And yet, for some reason, God told it to you. And I think it has to do with happiness. <laughs> so, we're done, and I hope that today's ministry to you from the word concerning your detours, your wilderness experience, your Joseph trajectory. Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. And the one who gives sustaining grace secures for himself the highest place. The one who gives sustaining grace secures for himself the highest place. There is no contradiction between my passion to be sustained in joy and satisfaction in God and God's passion to be magnified and glorified and to preserve for himself the highest place. You may revel in sustaining grace that comes to you with infinite, omnipotent intensity and not feel that you are making much of yourself because of the joy that abounds, because God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Lord, we lift our hearts to you, thanking you with everything that is within us for the glory of the gospel, the good news. I thank you for this people. I thank you for what they're Ministry to you through worship has meant to me. I thank you for CJ and the pastoral teams of these churches. And I am a richer man for having walked among them. And I thank you for it. Bless them, would you? I leave you now with a blessing. And this wonderful blessing this follows right out of Jeremiah. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. Isn't that awesome? Is able to keep you from falling and to present you without blemish before the throne of his glory with rejoicing. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Amen.